Welcome back to Three Decades of Tragedy, History of the Thirty Years' War. So last time we covered the Battle of Lutzen, which resulted in a Pyrrhic victory of the Swedes, and Gustavus also died, which would have major repercussions on the war going to the future, especially for the Swedish. So with that covered, let's get started. With the death of Gustavus, the Swedish government was left in a bit of chaos, although less than you would expect. Peace was not generally considered among the Swedish nobility and government, as it would look like Sweden was weak with their king dead. His death was generally portrayed as dying for the Protestant cause and hoping that the rest of the alliance would see him as a martyr, sacrificing himself for them, them being the German Protestants who he was, at least in propaganda terms, protecting from the Catholics. We all know that's not exactly accurate, but that's what propaganda is. I would think publicly a lot of the leaders among the Germans would go along with that idea, but privately they'd be very different. Secession wasn't a huge issue, as Gustavus had a clear heir in his daughter, Christina. However, she was only six years old at this time, and her mother, Maria Eleonora, was not up to acting as a regent for the kingdom. When Gustavus's body arrived back in Sweden by August 1633, his wife kept him in an open casket so she could visit him every day, and she locked herself in her room with her daughter when she heard about her husband's death. Oxenstiernia, who was a minister of the government, had his body interred 10 months later in Ritterholm Church in Stockholm, but Maria tried to dig it up, which the guards caught and stopped. It can be and has been argued that Maria was mentally unstable, but it can also be argued that she knew the death of her husband would cause her own personal influence and power to reduce as she was a queen regent and not of the bloodline. So if she can keep her influence over Christina, she can keep her influence in Sweden. I personally think it's a mix of both, as a spouse dying would have an effect on another spouse, even if it was an arranged marriage situation, but she was still nobility and consorts only hold power to their children and spouses, so she would still want to hold her influence. It's always a bit of both in most cases in life is what I find, or multiple if there's more than two things. If I had to put one on the other, I would argue a little more on the mental side. I don't have like evidence, that's just my gut feeling. But Oxensterna, who had taken over as a temporary leader of Sweden, sort of to keep them going, freed Christina from her mother in 1635 and forced the queen to take up residence in Gripsholm Island in 1636. The queen later fled to Denmark in 1640, though Christina didn't deign to see her mother for seven years after that, so 1647. That showed they didn't really have a great history with each other. As Christina was too young to rule, a council of ten took over the running of the kingdom till Christina would be of age, which would mean 1644, ten years. Oxensterna pushed through reforms that would strengthen the power of the region council, at, at least until the queen came through. From what I read, even getting ahead, it didn't seem like they were going for like a constitutional monarchy situation. It was just giving them more legitimacy to rule for a longer period of time. Not all of these councillors were on the side of Oxensterna, but they recognized he was indispensably important politically and militarily, so they named him High Chancellor to act as a figurehead for Sweden for now, especially in the case of, you know, the war going on. He effectively had the authority of a king, but realistically he had to persuade and convince people, unlike Gustavus, who could do what he wanted through his blood and charisma. Not saying Gustavus didn't try to convince people, but he could ignore other people if need be to get what he wanted. Oxenstierna had to be decisive due to the time it took communication to happen and remain the center of Swedish policy at this time. He actually had good relations with Christina at first, but this went more and more 
bad as she became annoyed under his tutelage. I couldn't find explicitly what the beef was, but I can see how it can clash, especially if she was more unorthodox. She's a whole thing about her, which I'm not going to get into now and maybe later, but a lot of it came after the war. But as she came into her majority, she supported the counselors that wanted peace, but by that point, Swedish policy had been set, so there was very little room to maneuver against that. Christina was actually interesting because she was a Francophile, which, like France, which was actually important for later parts of the war when France would join in. Christina also had some issues of being unwilling to marry, which created fears about secession, but that would be at least a decade till then, and at this moment, I can't say for sure what the issues were, which I might get into later, but for now, we're just going to focus on the war. Overall, the home front was relatively secure, with a reliable chancellor and a council set up to run the kingdom. There was a clear air, and once the queen was removed, it was relatively settled who did what, though there would be internal squabbling like always happened, just not enough to get in the way. However, moving away from Sweden, moving away from Sweden, the war front was another matter as Oxenstierna had to take care of a bunch of stuff in the war. The main thing he had to do was secure the loyalty of the army before things became a mess. Swedish service, despite the issues we have talked about, was still attractive for many German officers and soldiers, along with natives. However, there were very few native Swedish officers that had the skills to replace Gustavus as a commander and general. Oxenstierna, despite being a strategist, knew he did not have the talent of the king, so he wanted someone else to be nominated to take over as overall commander of the Swedish army and allow him to focus on Swedish policy back in the home. His first choice was Gustav Horn, who was a son-in-law, also a Swedish counselor even before all this, but he was cautious and had difficulty starting himself over other Swedish generals, which would have issues issues when they had to, you know, be the overall commander of the war. Another candidate was Johan Benair, but he was untested and only came to the fore in 1634, which was before all this decision-making, so he really wasn't a major candidate this time. The last candidate was Leonard Tortenson, who I mentioned earlier in the podcast, and I mentioned he was in artillery, but he was an artillery officer and had been rapidly rising through the ranks. Although he had been captured at Alt-Vest and was only freed through prisoner transfer in 1633, but his health from being a prisoner kept him from enjoying the war until 1635. And the fact that there's no good replacements was not helped by the fact that issues came about due to the Germans that served with or under the Swedish. Among the German leaders in the war, none were really trusted to lead the army as a whole. Johann George wasn't even considered, as Oxenstierna didn't like him and called him an insignificant tosspot. There's also Wilhelm of Weimar, who had been seen as a second-in-command to Gustavus, but he had left after Alt-Vest, claiming sickness, although it is claimed and likely that he didn't get the land he wanted as a reward from Gustavus, so he was sulking and not wanting to support Gustavus. But with his death, he tried to reassert himself, forming an army as Sweden's governor of Erfurt, though unfortunately he was in the shadow of somebody else. Funny enough, the man he was in the shadow of was actually his younger brother, Bernhardt, which both of them were actually part of a group of 11 siblings, although by the end of the war, there was not 11 siblings left. Bernhardt was an ambitious man and definitely became Oxenstierna's biggest issue and headache. He could definitely encourage and inspire men with bravery and loyalty, committing bold moves that could surprise the enemy, but at the same time, he could spell disaster for the forces under him, as he tended to be a bit reckless. He was also prone to changing his mind, wasting time during marches and other time-essential actions. 
So he was a very controversial figure within German and Swedish forces, which was added on to by his political ambitions. As Bernhard was the youngest of his 11 siblings, he was left with little to inherit or enforce his authority, as his father had left the running to the family land jointly to all brothers, which to me seems dumb and with like probably at least several brothers, and I don't know about the sisters, but there had to be a handful of brothers in that pile. I would pick one or split it up a bit, but I'm not his father. So he hoped that Sweden would reward him for a service with his own principality, so he tended to be pushy when Gustavus was alive. Oxenstierna, being aware of Bernhardt's ambitions, struggled to firmly commit to anything to try to keep Sweden's potential bargaining position with the emperor with regards to territorial demands, as if there was to be peace, they wanted as much land as possible. The issue here was who owned the army, in air quotes, was precarious, as many German regiments raised had swore loyalty to Gustavus, but his death brought up questions of who they served, and if they didn't have to serve anymore. They were also owed money, and Oxenstierna feared many of the princes led by Johann George would negotiate a separate peace with Ferdinand for concessions and an amnesty. The idea was actually debated among Catholics in Vienna, with people like Wallenstein saying they should negotiate peace. As someone who on the front line fighting and had dealt with some of the nasty fights that happened recently, I can see why. The Emperor, as expected and we've seen before, was committed to a hardline approach, seeing Gustavus's death as an opportunity he could take advantage of. It seems he had not learned any lessons in the last two years and wasn't really thinking about the increasing amount of debt he was accruing fighting this war. Christian IV of Denmark also saw this as a chance for peace and offered to act as a third party, sending messages to Johann George and Wallenstein to try to set up negotiations. Johann George, not wanting to face Swedish wrath, quietly supported George of Darmstadt, saying the Edict of Restitution should be temporarily suspended, with it to be amended in a peace, and by quietly, he didn't publicly support any sort of negotiation. There's actually brief talks between Saxony and the Imperials in March 1633 at Leitmeritz, but that fell apart due to Brandenburg refusing to break away from Sweden. Whether that was from genuine loyalty or just the iron boot of the Swedes or both, I don't know. Politics is complex, but either way, it broke down negotiations. And Ferdinand, in a rare display of giving ground, sent a representative to offer a suspension of the edict and revision of policy to go back to 1612, which would safeguard Lutheran administrators, which Denmark could get back of Bremen and Verden, but Magdeburg and Halberstadt would be reserved for the emperor's son, Archduke Leopold Wilhelm. To me, this reads as a clever trick to divide the Protestants, drawing Lutherans away from the alliance of Sweden, as well as weakening the native Germans supporting the Swedes. I don't think it was going to happen or using a lot of it, but it's an interesting idea and not a bad plan in theory. Oxenstierna, seeing all this, acted quickly to keep this from getting out of hand. He denied Bernhold's plan to unite the armies and launch a major strike against the Emperor, and sent Horn to watch over him to make sure he didn't do anything stupid. Benair was sent to bring Gustavus's body back to Sweden to distract him. Duke George of Lundberg and Landgrave William V were put in command of Lower Saxony with Philae respectively, which they were already kind of at that point in charge of. The best Swedish units were moved to garrison Mecklenburg and Pomerania, with Oxensterna hoping he could get Bremen, Verdun, and Mainz in negotiations, so he left garrisons there. Some regiments commanded by the Germans and Bohemian exiles were sent to reinforce Saxony and Brandenburg, partially to stop desertion and defection. And Thurn, our old friend from the initial rebellion, was placed in command of troops in Silesia. Oxensterna knew he was not a great general, so he needed someone to counter Arnim, who had conquered Silesia. So he increased the authority of Duwal, the man who I mentioned in that episode, who clashed with Arnim. Arnim was refusing to take commands from Franz Albrecht, the guy who dropped Gustavus' body, 
Italy, and France had been promoted to field marshal by Johann George. So Duval, despite that command, still did not listen to him, which showed he was kind of a stubborn guy. Oxenstierna actually considered Duval's smaller German force to be Swedish insurance if the Saxons decided to switch sides, as, remember, his force was made up of mostly Swedish troops. Overall, Oxenstierna made some intelligent moves, despite not being a great field commander. He moved to a more defensive stance to try to grant more time to settle this issue of overall command, and tried to counter anyone who could take over the power vacuum in the Swedish command structure until he could deal with it, which was intelligent as momentum had stopped on both sides, and both sides were trying to reorient themselves towards this new status quo. I will praise him on his ability to administrate and make large-scale moves relatively quickly on a war front. I can see someone of lesser talent faffing about and not committing to anything making this worse. That said, Oxenstierna still had to deal with the issue of command, but for now the war had slowed down and each side was tired and dealing with the death of Gustavus in their own ways. And like I said, you know, a couple seconds ago, both sides are reevaluating things. I will leave this here for now, as next week we will continue to look at the moves of the Swedes, their allies, and the Imperials, as Gustavus' death changed things. I want to thank you all for listening in and hope you're enjoying it. Social media links will be in the description box or on the links themselves. You can email me at 3DECOT at gmail.com. A reminder that I'm Patreon and thanks to those who support me. And please review and spread the word. And I'll see you guys next time.